Hello and welcome to the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. It's far from the first time and it certainly won't be the last time. Once again, we're looking today at the Ford government's attack on environmental protections and how it's handing power and financial windfalls to a small number of major developers who just happen also to be major PC party donors. Last week, Environmental Defence and Democracy Watch formally called for a police investigation into the circumstances surrounding apparent insider information leaks to developers ahead of the announcement of lands being removed from the Greenbelt. Joining us to discuss the nature of the evidence and the implications for both the environment and our democracy if these allegations prove to be true is Tim Gray of Environmental Defence. Tim has over 25 years of experience developing and implementing environmental policy change efforts and has worked with multiple governments across the political spectrum in pursuit of better environmental protections, working both with government and alongside other activists on the front lines of the battles to combat climate change and to, to defend the environment. Well, hello and, and welcome um, Tim Gray uh, from Environmental Defence to uh, the 905 podcast. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, um, as our listeners are already very well aware of um, what's been going on with the, with the province lately, with their announcements of um, uh, change, you know, as they would spin, spin it, um, changes or relocations of the green belt, um, uh, as others would say, you know, basically handing chunks of the green belt over to developers, um, and uh, environmental defence and uh, democracy watch have kind of collectively come together to to sort of challenge the the background to what's happening here so uh, perhaps you could just sort of kick us off by 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 explaining what exactly is that that um that that uh, you're trying to do uh, at the moment with regard to the the green belt changes yeah so you know most folks will realize the green belt is two million acres of farmland forest wetlands um it kind of wraps around the Greater Golden Horseshoe from Niagara over to Northumberland and then extends north along the, the spine of the Niagara Escarpment all the way up to Tobamori. So it's our um, anchor, environmental anchor um, in Southern Ontario. Um, it has grown and evolved over time since the mid 1980s when it was first, you know, early parts of it were first established by Bill Davis. So this is like a multi-generational, multi-government <coughs> initiative um, and it's meant to be permanently protected so not to be you know saved for a little while and then developed later um, and it uh, is uh, joined by something called the growth plan which is aimed to have housing be developed inside of existing cities you know greater density creates greater opportunities for transit uh, greater opportunities for biking, walkability, uh, reduces carbon emissions, higher quality of life, all those great things, right? That you get from building inside of your cities and investing there. So what we're seeing the current government do is basically race backwards to, you know, about 1950, you know, before the establishment of conservation authorities, before any of these land use plans, before any recognition that car-based sprawl um, is both an economic and environmental nightmare for Southern Ontario. Um, 
so they've gone in and, and um, attacked all of the planning rules, which result in this greater intensification, mandated cities to sprawl onto surrounding farmland, and then um, as well have gone right into the green belt itself. And uh, as you were mentioning, decided to give uh, big chunks of it to uh, sprawl developers. And of course, uh, that is probably their most high profile violation of a public commitment. You know, they'd re promised repeatedly up and down that they would never touch the green belt. And uh, now they very much more than touched it, <laughs> you know, more like grabbed it and thrown it to the ground and decided to give it away to a bunch of very well connected uh, developers. Um, so that's kind of the situation that we're in right now. And um, yeah, in particular, there's something that smells not great about the fact that a number of uh, these properties in the Greenbelt were purchased since the government um, came to power. And of course, land that is permanently zoned as farmland has much lower market value than land that could be turned into a subdivision. So if you're able to buy it, when it's zoned for agriculture, especially when it's zoned to be permanently um, zoned for agriculture, and then you're successful at getting that converted into a zoning that would allow for housing development, uh, the amount of money that you can make is just phenomenal. I mean, we're talking like being able to turn tens of millions of dollars for a large property into hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So there's some real money to be made here. And there was no public um, process around identification of these lands, um, no signaling that this was coming. In fact, all the signals were to the contrary, that you know, land wouldn't be touched. Um, and then suddenly, uh, 15 properties are announced that are being considered for removal from the Greenbelt, uh, very short public consultation period, and then immediately after closing of the consultation period, uh, a move to, to remove them from the Greenbelt. Um, so, you know, the questions that come to mind are like, did these developers know that these lands were going to be removed? If they did know, how is that possible? Did someone in government um, tell them? Were there conversations? Was that the premier? Was that the minister of municipal affairs and housing? Was that somebody in the, in the civil service? Um, or is it just luck that people went out and took large loans to buy land that couldn't be developed on and with the hope that someday legislation that everyone promised would never change would suddenly change? It's just, it smells really, really bad. So as a result, uh, you know, we have um, made a request to the Ontario Provincial Police to look into this issue and to determine whether or not they would see evidence here of uh, uh, violations under the criminal code, uh, uh, criminal breach of trust by a public official um, because of, of what we see and, you know, playing out in, in front of our eyes. Um, so two things on that. So, I mean, you, clearly you, you, something doesn't smell right here mm -hmm. to you that, that, and I think a lot of people are thinking the same thing is that, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, you know, how, how, how did these, businesses strike it so good within within a, a few months of, of this plan being in uh, being announced that's that's you know they should be buying lottery tickets if they have if they have that kind of luck um 
so you're quite, you know, I think it, people are, are, are understand that it's kind of reasonable to say, well, we need to investigate this. Something happened here. What, what happened? What has been the response from the OPP to your request? Have you heard back that they are opening an investigation? Are they, are they looking into it? What, what's the, what's been the response from the, from the OPP? Yeah, I haven't heard from them yet. Um, I did hear though, just in the last couple of days that um, there's a university of Toronto criminal law, and, and constitutional law professor who made a, a, a complaint as well, broadly parallel to the one that we put in. And uh, he was interviewed, uh, I think it was on Friday by the OPP. So I think they're just, you know, going through stuff that they've heard from people that is, you know, has detailed concerns articulated probably in a sequential manner, but I haven't heard from them yet. Are you concerned that some kind of fraud uh, ha- uh, happened here that, or, or some, you know, I mean, fraud is too much, too strong of a word, but that there, there was, you know, insider trading that, 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 that somebody basically your, your, your concern is that the government told these developers, this is what we're going, or the developers said, we want to buy this land, open the, d- d- open this up for development. And that this happened, you know, this kind of stereotypical backroom dealing took place here. Yeah, I mean, public officials are required to act in the public interest, whether you're elected official or whether you work for the provincial government. And, uh, you know, this was not done, as far as we can tell, in a way that provided equal opportunity for anybody who owned land in the Greenbelt to take advantage of the possibility of it being rezoned. So there's like, there's that aspect of it, too. And then for the largest portion of of the land removed from the Greenbelt, this is the Duffins Rouge agricultural preserve just on the boundary of Rouge National Park. And it makes up about 70% of all of the land removed. So it's about 5,000 acres. Um, it was protected not just in the Greenbelt, but also by its own legislation, uh, which was revoked in Bill 39 last week. Um, so though that legislation had easements on that that forced it to be agriculture forever, legislatively protected, pretty much the highest level of protection you can get, except maybe having it in a national park or something. Um, so when, uh, and those lands were originally expropriated from farmers back in the early 1970s for the Pickering Airport, uh, if you remember, <laughs> which never went ahead. And right. uh, some of those lands ended up in the national park. Some of them are still owned by the federal government in the province. But that 5,000 acre area was deemed to be not likely to be used or not going to be used. So it was returned to farmers, but the province wanted it to stay as as farmland. So they legislated easements onto the title. Um, So by removing those, and then subsequently to that, some of the farmers or most of the farmers were bought out by this, uh, by a number of developers, uh, one in particular. But by removing the easement, um, that land, which was purchased at, at very low prices as permanent agricultural land, again, um, has now massive value because now it's going to be developable. And all of that value belonged to the province. You know, that land was sold by the people of Ontario to farmers for farming. And now it's going to be flipped to development. Like if we really in this province want to build affordable housing, I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense to if, you know, we absolutely have to develop that land for housing, which there's no evidence is true, by the way. But anyway, if we wanted to, if the province decided that we wanted affordable housing, why would you not just expropriate that from the developer at um, agricultural land values? It would have cost you nothing compared to what it is once it has development rights on it. 
and built affordable housing on it ourselves. We could have put thousands of homes that were affordable on that land. Probably a bad idea from where it is, but we could have done that. <laughs> but if we really wanted to have affordable housing, we wanted to put it there, although there's um, no reason we would put housing there because we should be building them other places and we have lots of land other places. But just from a public interest perspective, if you actually wanted affordable housing to be built and not market housing, which is going to be $2 million per house way out in the middle of nowhere, you would have uh, expropriated those lands back from the developer at the at agricultural land prices. And then you could have built uh, housing there that was truly affordable. So there's a real... Um, uh, loss of public value here by removing those easements and turning that land into something that now has uh, massive, massive value uh, for the developers that own it. Thank you. Well, you're kind of touching upon uh, a theme that, that we're seeing here is that the, the urgency we're hearing from the province that we need to build housing to uh, to meet the demand that's, that's coming our way, uh, which is true, undeniable. We need housing in this province. But the question that everybody has is like, why, why this plot of land? Why, why, why is this land the one that needs to be carved up to meet that, that housing demand? And I think you touch upon an, an interesting point is that if this was about meeting the housing demand, there are more cost-effective ways to, to do that, right? You know, ra- rather than just hand it over to developers to say, okay, have at it, build us housing. Um, you know, like you said, you know, buy, buy person this land at a, at a, at a more reasonable rate and then building affordable housing on it. That is more, uh, tenable to the people who actually do need the housing would kind of make a, a more logical way to go. Um, cause the other thing is I, I, there's no criteria that once they own the land that these developers have to build on it like next year. We're, we're, we're assuming that they, they, buy, they buy the land and we're going to start seeing construction next year. Not necessarily. They might sit on it until it's re, even more valuable, uh, uh, you know, two, three, four years down the, down the road. Um, can you maybe just touch upon that? Like kind of the, 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 the logic of this whole enterprise of carving up the green belt for development when there's no, there's no sign to me that we're going to get houses there next year anyways. Yeah, I mean, the, the assertion that the province is you know, making when they opened up the Greenbelt and with all of these other changes that they've done, you know, attacking uh, wetlands, you know, shutting down the ability of conservation authorities to protect areas um, across the province, et cetera, is all that this is, all of this um, environmental protection or all this democracy that exists at a local level is in the way of building houses quickly. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, the ironic thing in all of this, of course, is that uh, there, there's no data to substantiate that we have a land scarcity problem that would drive anyone to open up the green belt. We have an area inside of uh, urban boundaries. So, you know, within the city boundaries, town boundaries of the area uh, of the cities and towns within the, the GTA, the size of the city of Vancouver that is uh, allocated for development is not built on. Um, also, everyone who's looked at this issue um, from a, a, a housing supply perspective has concluded that the green belt is not needed, including the province's own uh, housing task force. They were very explicit in saying you don't need to go into the green belt to uh, meet the housing supply needs. And in fact, what they recommended is that we make changes to 
the planning rules that exist within our cities and towns to allow for more uh, housing to be built within the existing urban boundaries. So, uh, and to do that in a way where you would have uh, more variety of housing types. Um, you know, for example, I live in uh, downtown Toronto. I live in a neighborhood that uh, was built out between the late 1890s and kind of 1920. Um, you know, we used to build uh, beautiful 10, 12 unit apartment buildings. They're on my street, but we haven't built any since about 1930. Um, because the planning rules just do not allow multi-unit buildings to go into my neighborhood. Similarly, I'm about 150 meters from College Street, and most of the stores along College Street in my neighborhood are two stories, or maybe three. There's no reason that those couldn't be six-story um, apartments, you know, uh, storefronts in the bottom, restaurants in the bottom like they are now, but, you know, four floors of apartments above that. So there's all of these rules in places like Toronto and Hamilton that really block more housing from being built in the city. And if you build it in my neighborhood, you have access to a subway within a 10 minute walk, you have a two minute walk away from a streetcar, you're a three minute walk away from a supermarket. Um, you know, there's no need to even have um, a car if you live in these kind of neighborhoods. But instead of enabling that, when they've passed all this recent legislation, uh, mandating places like Toronto, Hamilton, and other cities to, to allow this kind of development, they've instead lowered the density requirements for new develop development. So we have to put in fewer people per hectare when a new development goes ahead than we did before. We took apart the Hamilton and Halton plans, which had zero sprawl outside of their boundaries and forced them to sprawl onto farmland. And you open the green belt to development. Now the green belt is outside of the cities by definition. So this means far away, no, no infrastructure, no sewer, no water, um, new highways need to be built there. And everyone who lives there, if houses do get built there, will be car dependent. There will be no transit and uh, they'll be in the middle of nowhere. So these houses, as you can imagine, are very uh, likely to be single family homes, very expensive, not affordable. Um, so in light of all that information that you just gave to us and our, our listeners, what do you think is fueling this push onto the green belt? I think that all of this is, uh, you know, it's one big package and, uh, you know, we're seeing this in multiple areas, but in, in the, in the housing area in particular, it's like the, you know, the, the, the fantasy outcome for the lobbyists for the Ontario home builders association and build like, these guys, I, I know all these people, they're always lobbying for their own self-interest. They're, they're industry associations. And, but uh, most of the time, they don't ever actually expect to get what they're asking for because you know, most governments think, well, that's what you want and you have your, your view, but we're here to like represent the public interest and we have to like balance your demands with what society needs. And um, in this case, with this government, they just don't care about the public interest. It's whatever um, the loudest industry developer uh, and industry association wants, they get. And you know, just to like underscore that, I think um, you may have seen some of the comments in the media last week from Build, um, and they're concerned about how how badly uh, the powers of the conservation authorities have been eroded um, by some of the, by Bill Twenty Three. Um, 
because now they're concerned that some of the services they rely on are not going to be available anymore because they've been those powers have been stripped from the conservation authorities. It's kind of like one of those careful what you wish for moments, right? Like they kind of overreach themselves, um, you know, probably not anticipating that, you know, any government would ever do some of the crazier things that they were demanding. But this government's just done them all for them. I, I just on that very point, I mean, uh, when these announcements about the Greenbelt came out, I think it was the Hamilton Hamilton Wentworth Home Builders Association, uh, the Sheva Home Builders Association for the Hamilton Halton sort of region. Uh, uh, they met that and said, yes, of course, we, we welcome these changes. But, um, uh, you know, what we'd also like is to see the the height limit on um, on high rises in downtown Hamilton removed. What happened a week later? that limit was removed. <laughs> it's like literally they had reached the end of their list of ass and they tacked something else on and they got that too. Uh, and it really was staggering to see, like you say, I mean, there are so many activist groups, industry groups, pressure groups of whatever kind. And the government's job is to listen to those and you balance the needs and you, you move forward according to the demands of the public and of the stakeholders and so forth. And what we have here is just one stakeholder getting everything they want um, uh, over the last eight years, but particularly over the last since since the election. I mean, do you, I mean, why do you think? I mean, is it is it so obvious? Is it as obvious as, as certainly I, I, I've probably suggested on this podcast in previous weeks as? Um, as a direct line connection between um, donors to uh, a political party and um, industries that that get what they want, um, um, so in such a clear and unambiguous way. I mean, the the connection between a lot of the development industry and, and the current government in terms of political donations has been well documented and very clear. Um, all of those donations, you know that are um, you know, added up on the Elections Ontario website, et cetera. All of that stuff is, is legal for sure. I mean- Yeah, um, no, you're not suggesting yeah. otherwise, but yeah. So, you know, it, it, that, that is what it is. Um, and, you know, developers and other industries donate to multiple political parties. I mean, I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I think there's a deep um, sense within this government that, um, you know, industrial interests, business interests, you know, know best and that they will advocate for like what's good of society. Um, unfortunately, that's not true. Um, businesses are in business to make money and they're in business to advocate for things that will make them money as quickly as possible to return that money to their shareholders. And that's all fine. That's the way we've set up corporations. But that doesn't mean that it's in the long term interests of society to always do exactly what they all want, especially around these issues around planning. You know, we need to look at evidence. We need to look at um, other uh, societal interests. Like we need clean water, we need clean air. We need to have public transportation systems that service us um, and allow people to move around effectively. Um, you know, the broader even economic good of this region is not to be found in catering to um, businesses that build tract homes on farmland. Like that may be what maximizes their profit, but that doesn't mean that that's what's good even for the rest of the business community in, in this region. When people are stuck in gridlock, you can't move goods across the region. Um, everything's polluted. The water supply uh, is no longer clean. 
and we're massively increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Like there's not a, there's no uh, economic, social, or environmental future in that view, even if it means uh, short-term profits for the housing industry. Would it be possible for, so I mean, obviously the, you know, traditionally the, the opposition parties are there to oppose, <laughs> it's right in the name, uh, and, and to, to hold a government to account. At the moment, both opposition, both of the second place and third place parties, if you like, uh, are leaderless. Um, and only the Greens have a, a leader actually in the House. Um, but those parties, I guess, could say pretty clearly that, OK, uh, we're going to return that land immediately to the Green Belt the moment where we form a government. Uh, and we sort of we give warning to the owners of that land and anybody developing on that land that that, that we're going to uh, that that's what we're going to do. And that could act as a, almost as a kind of damper on the market. Do you think that's something that, that, that they should be looking at? Absolutely. Um, I think that, um, you know, given how egregious these changes are, is that it's going to be very important that as we head towards the next election, that the opposition parties commit to uh, repairing the damage to the planning system that uh, you know, the various pieces of legislation that have passed over the last month have done, but also um, any of these lands that have been removed from the green belt to immediately um, put them back in and uh, rezone them uh, for agriculture and, and nature protection as they were. I wanna go back to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, your, your the recent statement of your request for the OPP to investigate what's been going on here. Um, I mean, you you've never done this, I think, for any previous government, at least not, not that I can recall. Is would that be correct? That's true. Now, this this is going to be a bit of a hypothetical, but I'm, I'm trying I'm trying I'm trying to impress upon our listeners kind of the seriousness of what you're doing. And the, the unprecedented nature of what you and Democracy Watch are, are doing here. Say the OPP is, does investigate uh, uh, what, what happened here, and they do find what we're concerned about, what we're all worried about did happen. There was some kind of backroom insider deal, an exchange of quid pro quo, one way or the other, over this deal. In your opinion, how serious of a transgression? would that be uh, in the history of this province and perhaps even uh, in, of the country? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, never mind a criminal lawyer, so, nor do I know the, you know, the, the history of, of these kind of issues particularly well, because it's, you know, doing this, as you said, is new for us. But I think that, you know, if we have a situation where, um, you know, the provincial uh, governments, whether those be elected officials or, or people who are appointed in the government, um, are you know, giving particular favors to particular developers so that they can make massive amounts of money and those opportunities are not available to others or there's public assets that are being transferred for free um, you know, to individual developers, then you know, people, of course, should be shocked about that. I mean, it'll be up to the police to determine, A, whether to launch an investigation. And if they do, if they lay charges, that'll be because somebody's violated the criminal code. And, you know, I don't know what the trajectory um, is for elected officials if they're charged under the criminal code for doing such a thing. And that's not my area of expertise, but you can imagine like it's, you know, it's pretty shocking that, you know, to have uh, people in government, you know, that are that that would be charged in such a manner if that's if that's what it com comes to. 
Um, you know, the, you know, the reason for us doing this is just because it seems to us to be so blatant, uh, you know, what's going on here. And, you know, maybe we're missing something, but <laughs> I don't know how. It seems so obvious to me that there's no way that uh, these kind of investments would be made in these properties without an expectation of them being removed and, and, and profits be made. Do you still trust this government or do you, did you have any trust with this government? Well, it's hard. It's hard for, I mean, we, I've worked with many, many governments over my career, you know, across the country, many governments here in Ontario. You know, I, I first started doing work in the environmental sector. David Peterson was premier, which I guess ages me a bit, but, um, you know, just at the end of his, his, uh, his term and, um, you know, including Mike Harris's government and, and Stephen Harper's government, which are, you know, both on the, on the right end of the political spectrum. And we got good stuff done with them. We didn't always agree with them, but we doubled the park system in Ontario under Mike Harris. I, I worked on a campaign with, with two other organizations and we doubled the size of the park system. Um, you know, when Stephen Harper was, was prime minister, we did some great work on banning toxic chemicals and expanding the, the national park system. So, you know, this is the, the first government that I've ever worked with where there is just no progress on environmental issues. Uh, everything from climate change to uh, land use planning and, um, and just complete fiction about the stuff that they say they're going to do versus what they actually follow up with. And I think the Green Belt is just kind of like maybe the worst example of how blatant uh, the lies are. I mean, how much clearer could they be that they were never going to touch the green belt? How many, how many videos have you seen circulating around with the premier saying they would never touch the green belt? And then what do they do? They get elected and they're right in the middle of the municipal election campaign. They come out with a plan to, you know, touch the green belt pretty heavily. So, I mean, it's hard to have trust for someone who lies to you all the time. Uh, it, it's, it's almost the, the, the constant kind of stream of bad news uh, you know, and, and I'm coming at this from a perspective of thinking that, that the kind of municipal and housing regulatory field was was pretty appalling to start with and <laughs> um, was very problematic. And actually, I mean, obviously the environmental side of it is one side and, and the most important, um, undoubtedly, and to be going backwards on environmental issues at a time when, you know, time is running out uh, in every single possible way uh, is just distressing to the extreme but the other side of this is, it seems to me is the kind of contempt and distrust for democracy and that the uh, the decisions of other levels of government particularly municipal levels the regional region of Halton the, the city of Hamilton um, uh, it, it just basically take decisions that, that are a result of very long consultations or of, of, of far more far more public um, consultations and other consultations than actually the province ever took took part in, uh, uh, resulting in sort of statements that they weren't going to expand urban boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just to throw that all in the garbage can seems to speak to me to, to something else. Uh, um, with with regard to kind of this government's view of democracy, and I, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that, on the kind of the precedent that that this uh, this kind of action sets. Yeah, I mean, you see it in in multiple areas, um, but on the environmental side, which I know most about, um, you know, we've seen um, you know contempt for due process for uh, the results of of 
consultations with the public um, with the results of decisions made by municipal authorities um, in the area of the environment, you know, again and again, um, you know, they've been found guilty in court of violating the, the Environmental Bill of Rights, you know, not providing uh, opportunities for public consultation when they're making major environmental changes. Um, we see uh, very short timelines for consultation with bills passed before the consultation period even closes. Um, you know, you, you name it. And, you know, you, you, you highlighted what happened uh, in Hamilton and Halton where, you know, their official plans, which they spelt, spent years developing, were just wiped away with no rationale for, for why those plans were thrown away. Um, so, you know, there, there really is uh, no sense that the decisions that the public participates in or where other levels of government um, you know, are trying to do something that's, that's proactive and positive from an environmental perspective uh, should be respected in any way. And of course, with municipal governments, unfortunately for them, is that they are you know, kind of a legislative creature of the province, right? So it's very easy for the provincial government to step in and, and quash whatever uh, proactive decisions that they're making. Um, you know, I think there is a sense within the development industry that um, removing the ability of regions and cities to have uh, any say over planning means that they'll just be able to go directly to the province and get you know done whatever they want so that tends to be their preferred approach but you even see the province battling with the federal government trying to block progressive uh, environmental action i mean it's harder for them because the federal government is not something that they can just quash they they have to fight it out in the courts but they're they're trying to do that too i mean we're, we're drawing to an end of our time here, uh, but uh, perhaps we could just sort of address in the sort of final seconds. Uh, what can what can our listeners do? Um, I think I think I don't think there's any great secret that our audience is probably going to be extremely sympathetic to, to to your kind of perspective by and large. I don't think we have a large audience of developers. <laughs> um, we have tried. Yeah, we have maybe, tried. Well, Both sides. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, what what can people do? What can people do to to, to kind of get get involved with this and to to you know beyond you know throwing out a couple of tweets or whatever? Um, what can you do to to actually kind of try try and make a change here? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we're encouraging people to do. I mean, one is that the pressure on uh, MPPs you know continues and will continue into the new year uh, to reverse some of these changes. And then the other is to to focus on areas in their community um, where they can actually make a difference. Um, all of these areas to be removed from the green belt, um, as I mentioned previously, lack approval uh, for zoning. They lack approval for infrastructure. Um, you know, the, the upcoming municipal decisions are gonna be very important there. Uh, in addition, um, there's gonna be a role here for the federal government, uh, in particular for that large area of land I mentioned on uh, the boundary of, of Rouge National Park. There is a, a large number of areas of, of federal interest ranging from indigenous rights to the Fisheries Act, to the National Parks Act, 
that are all uh, negatively influenced by by this decision. So um, people really should be connecting with their federal MPs and encouraging action there too. So stay involved, um, connect with organizations like Environmental Defense. You know, we can uh, focus your attention with two community members in your area, community groups that are working on these issues. Uh, stay involved and, uh, you know, we'll make a difference. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, Tim Gray from Environmental Defence, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favourite podcast app.